There's a sound that's familiar to motorsports fans, no matter what form of racing you follow. It's the sound of a car that is spooling up, gathering steam, getting ready to lay down a lap. Maybe it's just a test session or a practice. Maybe it's a qualifying run or a hot lap. But the sound is unmistakable. And sometimes the lap time comes up, the crowd starts to murmur or even cheer. But that usually happens after the lap when something amazing has happened. But every once in a while, someone notable takes a lap and the murmuring from the crowd starts almost instantly. Maybe it's a hotshot rookie with a lot of hype or a driver who's with a new team. Everyone wants to see what'll happen because they know for some reason or another, that lap could be special. In July of 1998, a few of those laps occurred at a very dangerous track with a driver who was paralyzed from the chest down. Today on Stagger, you're going to hear from a man who conquered a racetrack that nearly took away everything. Turns of loose coming into the front stretch. Tommy changed the entire throttle system last night, the night before a race. But, oh, he can't do that. But we want to thank you tonight for these mighty machines that you brought before. Welcome to Stagger, where we explore motorsports heroes, legends, and myths. I'm J.D. Smith, and along with my brother Derek Smith, we are so grateful you've decided to check out this story. If you enjoy it, we're releasing new shows every Wednesday, so make sure you subscribe in whatever podcast app you're listening on. Today on our show, we have the first episode ever that we've done with not one, but two guests. And the first episode we've done where we actually interview the subject of our podcast, Brad Doty, who you'll learn about more in this episode, was gracious enough to give me about an hour of his time. And you'll hear some of that interview later on in this episode. I also spoke with Dave Argebright, legendary motorsports journalist and writer, who is the co-author of Brad's autobiography, Still Wide Open. Both men are in the National Sprint Car Hall of Fame in Knoxville, Iowa. Also, I should mention that the Brad Doty Classic is coming up July 13th. So if you're listening to this and you want to go watch some of the best sprint cars on the planet, go to AtticaRacewayPark.com to purchase tickets. And if you're listening to this after that event took place, well, there's always next year. Okay, Derek, what do you think of when I say the name Brad Doty? For me, not really knowing all the history behind Brad Doty, it would probably probably be the race at Attica, the Brad Doty Classic. That's what I just thought it was a sponsor of a race. I'm going to be really naive or really vulnerable here. I thought he was just a guy that sponsored a race. It's like, hey, my name's Brad Doty. I got some money. I'm going to sponsor this race. They call it the Brad Doty Classic. I'm like, man, someday I might have some money. I might make it the Derek Smith Classic. <laughs> Why not? That's interesting because in sprint car world and in, in the racing world, for those who don't know, there's a lot of races that tend to have names attached to them. And sadly, they don't have names attached to them usually for great reasons. I mean, they there are a lot of memorial races yes. where racers Lu, have Lu died. Yeah, or, or, or yes, in that case, yeah. you know, Lou Blaney died like right. as an older man. Yes. But there have been ones that are, you know, named after racers who died in an accident. And there was a memorial race set up for that driver. Right. So Brad Doty, that's not the case, thankfully, with him. But let's talk about Brad Doty because you're right. The Brad Doty Classic, it's a World of Outlaws event. It's a big deal. And that is a name that I that's a way I think a lot of people who are probably under 30 would know Brad Doty. If you're a little older than 30, you might know him from his days on TNN as a broadcaster mm. because he also, back in the day, TNN used to broadcast sprint car races, dirt yep. track races, 
It was actually pretty crazy. They would, used to do, was it Friday Night Thunder? No, Monday, Thursday Night Thunder, something like that? There was thunder. There what was we thunder. know is there was a, a weeknight with thunder. That's where you're talking about as far as knowing Brad Doty, if you're a Sprint Car fan. But if you are a Sprint Car fan and you know the history, uh, the Knoxville National Sprint Car Hall of Fame. Knoxville, they, Iowa. In, yeah. yeah, Knoxville, Iowa. They inducted Brad Doty into their Hall of Fame because of his career as a driver and also as because of his career as broadcaster. Brad Doty was a legendary sprint car driver, born in July 27, 1957, from Millersburg, Ohio, which is hey, oh. big, big Amish country up there. That is, yeah. if you want to get cabinets made, go to Millersburg. <laughs> I'm sure you can find someone who can or make you, you some want cabinets. Really good Brad. Or, yes, good baked goods. Excellent. <laughs> yes, we recommend Amish country uh, for all of that. The but, rolling hills of Millersburg. Actually, it's really funny because that area, too, uh, the Hodden Shields are from that area and. Uh, Brad Doty grew up with them like yeah. he and Jack Hoddenshield and that whole family they oh, would there, go to a, races together to watch as fans when they were younger like teenagers and you stuff know so the they, first, they were huge fans there and that's some of the best drivers the Jacobs family's out of that area too so yeah a lot of a lot of talent up there I was gonna say my first sprint car race I ever went to a friend of mine I coached soccer with invited me to go to Hilltop Speedway for the this thing called the Ohio Sprint Week and the all-stars were coming to town Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what this was, but I was like, hey, this is pretty cool. And I remember going up there, and he was all excited to watch these sprint cars. Thanks, Will. You got me hooked That's on the dirt. That's what got you hooked on it, yeah. You got me hooked oh, it, on the dirt, man. Yeah, it really has. It hooked in. So Brad Doty's from that area. Uh, he started racing sprint cars, or I think they, these weren't even wing sprint cars at that time. They were just regular sprint cars without the wings at Lakeville Speedway, which was a quarter-mile dirt track in Amish country in northeast Ohio. Then uh, he started racing full-time, got hired on in 1979, and started touring the country and and running in a car where he was getting Mm. paid to race. I think that was about six years or so, they said, five or six years, where he was toiling and getting to that point, and then eventually got the hookup in 1979. 1982, another big year for Brad Doty, he joined the World of Outlaws, which it's not quite the same for people who don't know sprint car racing. It's not like you join up like the NASCAR Cup Series or IndyCar, you don't end up like signing a contract saying, I will run every race. It's more or less that you're you're planning to follow them, and but you have to show up. Like if you don't mm. show up, they just don't worry about it. They're just like, all right, well, he didn't show up. He's not he an outlaw. Show up today, yeah. The 80s and 90s for the world of outlaws was kind of where they really took off and became this big, humongous deal. Um, so in 1982, Brad Doty was their rookie of the year. Pretty, pretty good year for him, I would say. He was famous for running the Bowers Cole Sprint Car, which was this cool yellow car with like a silver top. Still excellent. It's on some t-shirts if you go check out like the Brad Doty Classic mm. t-shirts. A lot of times that's one of the cars they'll put on there. He was also famous for running the Coors Light advertising on a Sprint My Car. My favorite beer. Brad Doty's best season came in 1987 when he won seven races. Uh, came in second in the World of Outlaw points to uh, some guy named Steve Kinzer. And we'll we'll at some point do a lot more on the Kinzers and, and that whole racing family because it, there's a lot to cover there. And it may even take more than one episode. But just know in 1987, this is how dominant Steve Kinzer was in that era. Steve Kinzer, I told you, Brad Doty had his best season ever was second in the points in the world of outlaws really good accomplishment he won seven races steve kinzer won 50 races that year (laughs) that's just insanity outside this would be like 
I guess a good way to equate it, and I'm not trying to diminish what Brad Doty did or anything like that. I, I, I think the way to say it would be if you were looking at a race car driver who was racing alongside with Richard Petty or Dale Earnhardt yeah. in their primes, yeah. and you would say, well, that that guy won you know, pretty good amount of races. It's like, yeah, but this other guy won more. And it's like, well, yeah, because that other guy's Dale Earnhardt. Yeah. The other guy's Richard Petty. Steve Kinzer's in that category in the world. I mean, in sprint cars, there's no one above him. So you look at like Bobby Labonte and Terry Labonte, guys like that, that yeah, had Rusty Wallace. Great those careers. guys, Hall of Famers. Hall of Famers. Yes. Fantastic racing careers, but they ran up against Dale Earnhardt, and that that's that's what made them not win as many races. I was a really good F1 driver. Oh, yeah? Well, did you win more than this first guy, Ayrton Senna? It's like, okay, well, no, I didn't beat him. Lewis but. Hamilton? <laughs> right, yeah, racing against Lewis I mean, Hamilton but, right now. Like this right is now, Steve it, 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 like if you're listening to this in 2022 and George Russell is the second driver at, at Mercedes, you're going to laugh at this, but like right now it's Valtteri Bottas. Bottas is a great driver. He's a fantastic driver, podium after podium after podium, but his teammate is the world champion. I think the seven-time world champion, right? I like how you try to predict the future. Seven, I believe. Seven. You try to predict the future for people who will be listening in the future, which we want, but also how we don't know what the future is. So then we we do that. That's always fun. Simona Di Silvestra, Mercedes (laughs) second driver. You never know. Let's do a precog episode where we're just like, uh, in the future, George Russell has won. 2025, Lewis Hamilton (laughs) retires and joins... 2311 racing. Oh, he's coming to NASCAR. <laughs> Breaking news. With Kimi Raikkonen. Yeah. <laughs> and the perky yeah. jerky. Yeah, there you sponsor. go. Sponsor. Let's talk about Brad Doty as a as a person. For people not watching sprint cars in the 1980s, which is when he was driving, he was probably the most popular driver in the world of outlaws just from a charisma standpoint. He was in 1988, he was entering his prime as a sprint car driver. This is a guy who put on a show his his biography is called still wide open like known yeah. for just living life to the fullest and driving his cars and putting them putting them out there that's that's what people love to see you know they talk about selling t-shirts at uh you know sprint car races or racetracks i mean it's it's the guys who will hang it out there and right. try to put on a show every single night brad Doty was that kind of guy uh hell of a driver and like i said i'm sure it doesn't hurt that and this is why they sponsored him coors light sponsoring your car Right. You're right. going to a track, you're slamming beers. You see the guy with the Coors Light sponsorship. He gets out of the car. He's handsome. He knows how to drive. He's cool. Like you can see why he would be popular. It right. made a lot of sense. So I would equate him. And this is personal equation because you know how much I love Bill Elliott back in the day. Mm-hmm. Bill Elliott and NASCAR always won NASCAR's most popular driver. Dale Earnhardt Sr. was running at the time and never won it. Famously, yeah. never won it, sadly, Dale Earnhardt Sr. until he passed away. Yeah. The year that he passed, Bill Elliott said, I'm removing my name from the voting. And Dale Earnhardt Sr. ended up winning it that year. But mm. but anyway, that's how popular Bill Elliott was back in the day. He was a super popular driver, but he didn't win the most. Everyone just loved that guy. Right. That's who Brad Doty is. Uh, so if, if that makes a little bit more sense. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about July 23rd, 1988, because that's where we kind of take this story. Because what we're trying to talk about today is overcoming these type of things that happen in life that you can't control. And Brad Doty, I think, as much as anything, his popularity soars even further after this tragic incident that we're about to talk about. So this is the, the King's Royal, 1988. It was the fifth king's royal <laughs> which wow. is which is just we're now <laughs> the king's royal is this legendary I dirt track sprint car race yeah like it's 
now it's in its 30 something running and it's it's a huge deal and there's four nights of it and it's just the you want to win this thing it, it pays out a ridiculous amount of money it's at eldora speedway mm. which is the you know legendary dirt track but at the time eldora was still a big deal and king's royal still a big deal it was only in its fifth year they said the track was a bit wet that day and so in the feature what happened was jeff swindell hit a puddle and his car ran into Ben Cook's car. Just before impacting the wall, Jeff Swindell's car was able to turn back away from the wall and it caught the right side of Brad Doty's tail of his car. Mm. So Brad Doty bounced sideways. Doug Wolfgang, another legendary sprint car driver, hit Brad Doty. I think a couple other cars did too. But unfortunately, the way the cars were rolling and the way the impacts happened, you have to remember at Eldora Speedway, these cars are going 140 miles an hour. In these are these are very small chassis cars. They are there's not a lot of protection. It's gotten better over the years, but yeah. this is 1988 we're talking about. Right. One of the cars that hit Brad Doty hit him in such a way that it ripped the frame member that was holding Brad's seat to the frame. As a result, he suffered an injury to his thoracic level vertebrae between the T4 and T5, which I'm not a medical expert. I don't know what that means, but it means he had a very severe and traumatic injury to his spine mm. that caused paralysis below his chest. And so he was able to use and is able to use both of his arms. This was a really bad deal for him. I mean, you have to th kind of understand how this went for Brad Doty. I mean, he, he goes from being this charismatic guy that everyone looks at as like one of the badasses at the racetrack. And then you're flat on your back in a hospital in Dayton being told you're going to have no use of your body below your chest and you're a race car driver. Mm. I mean, I I can't process what that would mean, but I'm quite sure that has to be about as low of a point as you could have. One of so, the lowest points you can come to as a human, for sure. Yeah. I mean, to have something that you love to do taken away from you, and it's your profession, um, but it's also something you love to do. By the way, he was in the hospital when his daughter Brittany was born. So like, mm. this is a man who had kids, you know, he's married, he's, you know, he's in that part of his life where you're like, that's, that's what your life's going to be. You're just thinking about all the things you're going to do, going to kids practices and events like that. I mean, you and I are in similar positions in our lives where we have oh, young yeah. kids and I just can't imagine, uh, you know, what that would feel like. So Brad Doty went through rehab, but of course was in a pretty bad funk as you would think anybody would be. 1989 he showed up at the Knoxville Nationals as a spectator and I remember seeing video of this where he's in like a van that they had set up I think with hand controls and he had his wind hand out the window and he kind of pulled up on the track and they were letting people you know he was waving but it took him like a year just to even get back to a racetrack yeah. to be comfortable in that situation and, and again I can't blame him what's interesting as you mentioned the Brad Doty classic yeah that race that was born out of this incident, actually. Attica Raceway Park was only two months old when Brad Doty suffered his accident. So he mm. never actually raced at Attica, but they thought, let's do something to help. So they staged the first Brad Doty Classic. Funds from the Classic were used to help offset the costs of his medical bills, wow. which is a very cool gesture. Yeah. That event now is a World of Outlaws event, but at the time it wasn't. It was just a startup kind of yeah. event that eventually got bigger as it went 2005 is when it actually became a world of outlaws event fast forward a couple years to 1992 he gets a call from tnn because like i said they're broadcasting these races and they called him and said hey dude you want to do some work 
we want you to come on and talk about the dirt track stuff. You, you can, we think you'd be a great commentator. They brought him in, gave him a tryout. He did a race, I think in Arizona with Mike Joy and Dick Bergren. Again, Ooh. the caliber of wow. announcers you had. Yeah. yeah he's yeah. the real godfather and of NASCAR. Dirk, Dick Bergren. My God. Like that guy. That I mean, Samuel I L. Jackson looked at him and said, I need to steal his his fashion sense. Dick, Dick Bergren is cooler than than almost anyone who's done races. And I, I, I promise you, we will talk about Dick Bergren's history, but I would just leave you with this. The man once was a professor at a university and got basically kicked out of the school because he brought his sprint car to the college and parked it in the faculty <laughs> parking lot. This man, this oh, man. We yeah. Need, we need to talk about some, we need to get some Dick Bergen stories. Dick Bergen is great, man. Yeah. He's, he's awesome. That's who Brad Doty starts announcing with. And that's the thing that gets him into a new line of work. Brad Doty now starts also doing sprint car announcing national television sports commentary that's a tough deal man that's that's not easy to do so i i have a ton of respect for guys who can break down what we're seeing and obviously he knew what he was seeing he, he if you ever listen to him he was just one of the best announcers i've ever heard during a race who could just cut through the bs and say oh yeah the reason he's running up there is because he can't get enough you know on the right rear tire he's trying to get that thing up in the soft stuff so he can get some grip and just He'd really help you understand the science of what was happening during these races and also understand the emotion of what these guys are feeling as they're in the cars, which I imagine would be very difficult for him because he probably thought I should be in that car. Right. I should be doing that. So in 1998, they're broadcasting the 15th annual Kings Royal. Ten years after Brad Doty had his accident in the fifth Kings Royal, he was able to get back into a sprint car. Hmm. And if you have not seen this video, man, I don't know. I don't know if it'll hit everyone the way it hits me i don't know if it'll hit you the same way derek but what they did these two guys larry wood and bill holder they restored a sprint car similar to the one that brad doty drove in 1987. this is a quote from brad doty he said i told my wife i would never drive a sprint car again but she knew this was important to me she told me to go for it so july 1998 at king's royal they on tnn come back from a commercial break and you see this coors light machine going around Eldora very slowly. But, eh, I mean, Eldora is packed. This place holds right. 30,000 people. Everyone's standing up and cheering. And at first it's like, wait a second. Is that? It is. That's Brad Doty mm. at Eldora, the track where he his career ended. That's him in a sprint car. Basically, it's a replica, but it's driving it around this track again. I mean, every time I watch this video, I get emotional. And I can't imagine what it was like to be there on that night. I mean, it truly had to be just something that opened you up and let out an ocean of tears mm. like for every person that was there at least it would have for me this was the coolest thing about this brad doty situation at eldora when he's driving around in this you know hand-controlled sprint car if you haven't watched this video i encourage you to because he starts going he's going at a very slow pace moderate pace like a pace car basically what he's rolling around at all of a sudden you hear this noise it's just Every sprint car fan knows this. Every dirt track fan knows this noise. It's when someone is on it and they actually are punching it. That noise starts coming out of his car. And you're like, <laughs> holy crap, he's going to he's gonna take a lap. He's going to take a hot lap here. And sure enough, they drop the green flag on him. And he rolls it around there at, I would say, probably 75 80%. I don't know. I mean, he would probably have to tell us what it is, right. actually. But it, as it's, it was as, again, this is a dude who 
is using hand controls and steering a car where almost all mm. of the steering is done with throttle. Yeah. How you're doing that, I mean, you look at guys, if you watch in cars of guys doing sprint car driving, now you have two hands, what do they always say? Elbows up, two hands on the wheel. I mean, you're you're fighting that thing all the way through the corners. He has to have a hand on the accelerator to steer the car. And of course, a brake. Oh, and of course, this is in front of everyone on national TV. You definitely don't want to screw this At the up. the place where he got paralyzed. Where, yes, of, where danger exists. Danger yeah. lurks everywhere, especially given his situation. And he took multiple laps at a pretty pretty good rate of speed. Right. One thing that, that was amazing to see was Brad Doty's humor about at the very end of the video, he talks about if he had enough fuel, maybe he'd go out and win this thing. Oh, don't let my wife hear that. And then also, <laughs> also too, the, the cool thing was seeing his kids. You had his wife tearing up watching him. You had the young daughter who's 10 with like her mouth open like, oh my gosh, that's my dad? My dad's doing that? Like, that's really cool. And the older daughter getting hugged by her mom, like, that's just cool. I mean, for anybody that's a father, a big brother, an uncle, like, if you've had any sort of adversity in your life, to have someone that, that looks up to you, able to see you at the basically at the pinnacle of what you do it's something very rewarding you know that we always talk about the racing community is a family no other way to, to describe that or to define that than by watching that one last ride by brad doty um, because it's phenomenal it's it really is and it's it shows you that racing is a big family and that's the thing i think that draws you and me to the sport is that you know there's a lot yeah these machines go fast for sure um and heck you and me even probably have some differences on Maybe some political things like we all probably do on the spectrum. But when it comes down to it, racers are family members. You know, like you're out there, you're, you're watching them. They're watching you. You know, one doesn't exist without the other, literally. And I think that is what defines racing is that we're one big family. Well said, Derek. I'd recommend everyone check out the video of this moment, which you can still find on YouTube. In fact, you can check the show notes where we've posted a link to that video or you can go to Stagger Podcast on Twitter. We've also posted the link there. Coming up next, you'll hear from Brad Doty and Dave Argabright about that special night right here on Stagger. Well, the car was really built as a more or less a replica in honor of me, and it was really never meant to go back on the racetrack. If you didn't guess, that's Brad Doty, the guy who went back to the place where his career ended after a horrific crash and drove a sprint car around said track. And as you heard him say, this car really wasn't supposed to ever be on a racetrack, kind of like its driver. And yet, in July of 1998 at the Kings Royal at Eldora, all of that was happening. We ran a certain brand of wheel when I was running that car, and they used to crack the centers of the wheels a lot and break and had a lot of issues. So for Larry, when Larry Wood decided to, to build this car, of course, he wanted, you know, as close to the real thing as he could get. So he found these brand of wheels, and sure enough, most of them were cracked. And he had to have them welded back up and 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 cleaned up and repolished and and all that and the rear end the front axle all that stuff was kind of just for show we'll talk more about that drive in a second with brad and also with dave argabright the man who helped co-author brad Doty's autobiography still wide open which is a tremendous read if you've never checked it out 
So many great stories that we can't get to in this podcast are in this book. I wanted to talk to Dave to understand more about the sprint car world in the early 80s, the world that Brad Doty entered into when he won Rookie of the Year with the World of Outlaws in 1982. The atmosphere at that time was very different. The first 10 years of the World of Outlaws, Brad was a a pretty significant player almost from the beginning when he ran, I think it was in 82, something along in there, and ran pretty much all the races with him from that point. The Outlaws were covered in a very different way than what we know today. There was no streaming. There were even, at that point, no video highlights really to speak of. And your opportunity to see the world of Outlaws was limited to when they came to your area, which was not very often, typically, you know, three or four times a year at the most. There was an aura that was created by that dynamic. You had no opportunity to get tired of these guys because you just couldn't see them enough. And so when they came to your area, when their faces were in Open Wheel Magazine and Speed Sport News, it was an exciting thing because of the newness of it. It was all very fresh and dynamic. And I think it just created this star power of uh, people like Steve Kinzer, Doug Wolfgang, Sammy Swindell, Brad Doty, Jimmy Sills, Jack Hewitt. There was a little different aura and they were celebrated, I think, a lot more than what we know today. Five years after Brad Doty won Rookie of the Year, he was in a much different place in the sport, and the sport was heading in the right direction. In 1987, I finished second in the points to, to Steve Kenzer, who, when he retired, was a, a 20-time champion. So I finished second to one of the best that's ever set in a sprint car, and it was the best season that I had ever had. 1987 was the first year that the World of Outlaws got what could be called significant coverage in the form of uh, video. Greg Stevens, he was a pioneering videographer and and media person, and uh, he made a deal with Ted Johnson to follow the races just like a racer and recorded pretty much every race and would get those highlights on television on ESPN's Speed Week program and different outlets like that where Suddenly, by the late 80s, when Brad had his accident, now you you didn't just read about racers. You actually saw their face and heard their voice as they spoke. You got to know them far more intimately than the printed word is capable of doing. In 1987, Brad Doty was driving for Fred Marks and Les Kepler in the legendary number 18 Coors Light Gambler chassis. And he started off that season with a bang a bang that actually began the prior year. At the end of 1986, the final World of Outlaws race was at Ascot, Ascot Park in Gardena, California. It's right in the middle of a bunch of, you know, the freeways out there and you could see the Hollywood sign. You know, one of the premier races to win in that era, there was the Western World, the Pacific Coast Nationals, of course, the Knoxville Nationals, Williams Grove National Open. They were some of the races that, man, if you could win that, you really accomplish something. So at the end of 86, I was able to win the Pacific Coast Nationals, which was my biggest win of my career. And it paid 10,000 to win. And we got a new Rodec aluminum block and all the contingencies and everything that went with it. It was, I think, close to 18 or $20,000. And that was a lot back in those days. The next day they ran a non-wing. Ascot was pretty known for the non-wing CRA racing. I didn't run a lot of non-wing stuff, but they they offered, I think it was a $2,000 or $3,000 bonus to the highest average finish over the Saturday and Sunday. 
So that's when in Saturday, it was kind of a no-brainer. We took the wing off and, and went out and ran the non-wing race the next night and finished fifth and got that bonus. So that brings us to the World of Outlaws opened the season right back at Ascot with a two-day show, and we were able to win both of those. So I won three straight World of Outlaws races at Ascot. Plus, it had palm trees in the infield, and there would be TV stars or you know movie stars, you know celebrities would show up at times that you just you know there was always something going on, and it was really a neat racetrack to race on, and just the whole atmosphere. In July of the following year, Brad Doty would be injured at the Kings Royal at Eldora. Injuries were not uncommon in motorsports or certainly in the world of sprint cars, but when Brad Doty sustained his injury, it deeply affected many in the sprint car community. The word I would use is heartbreak. When one of the favorite racers, when he struck down with an injury like that, you know, his fellow racers, fans, officials, track people, media people, it affected everybody. That that expression of Brad didn't have an enemy in the world, that, that was pretty, pretty accurate, really. It just rocked the sport. Meanwhile, the impact for the Dodies was instant. The challenges were immense. And as Brad lays out in his book, Still Wide Open, he entered some extremely dark times. Understandable, but real, and something he had to get through. For Brad, there wasn't one moment where this occurred, but a series of moments, a series of people who helped him. Chief among those was his wife, Lori, who stood by his side the entire time. But one thing that probably worked in my favor, so to speak, as far as learning to be independent, was my wife was about eight months pregnant with our third child when I got hurt. So it was, it was about three months after my accident before I got home. So I go home to uh, my wife who has a brand new baby and a husband obviously flipped our life completely upside down. One thing rehab did is, you know, being a paraplegic, I still had full use of my arms, but it, you know, they teach you to, to dress yourself and take care of yourself and shower and, and do all that. But I was really weak from just being in the hospital that long, you just, you lose so much muscle tone in your upper body. And that was a struggle, getting my upper body strength back. But, you know, I can proudly say that, you know, from day one, I mean, my wife had a baby to take care of and we had a a five-year-old, a three-year-old and a newborn. (laughs) So she had her hands full to say the least. So the last thing she needed was to take care of me. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, mentally I leaned on her and she helped me with a lot of a lot of things but I just knew that I had to get my act together it wasn't easy I mean I was it took a good year for me to even want to leave the house with time Brad was able to find things to motivate him in and around his daily life tasks that were once taken for granted like mowing the yard suddenly became major challenges challenges that this race car driver was bound to overcome I had a little lawn tractor and it was it had a clutch pedal that you had to push with your foot, took a piece of pipe and bent it in a vise and literally hose clamped it to the clutch pedal, hopped up on the tractor to, and was able to push the clutch pedal with my hand, fire it up and put it in gear. And I go out and I'm driving around the yard. My wife comes out with her eyes wide open and like, what are you doing? You know, and that was a proud moment for me. She used to strap the baby on and go out and mow the yard on the tractor or, or have somebody watch my sister or her sister, somebody watching the baby and the kids while she was out mowing, doing what I considered my job. It's in no way bragging. I'm just trying to relate to people, you know, how and what someone like that, you know, that goes through something like this, just what's involved. And you literally just have to push yourself and keep trying. 
I had always assumed that Brad Doty would have had a difficult time motivating himself because there wasn't a possibility to get back in a race car. But according to Brad, that's not entirely true. A lot of that is because I promised my wife that I would never do it because there was a paraplegic that was running a midget. Okay, for those who don't, you know, it's just a small sprint car, four-cylinder engine, and but they're really fast. And But he was a paraplegic in winning races uh, and unfortunately ended up getting killed uh, a few years later. At the time, he was very successful and it was in, the, you know, some of the magazines and different things like that. And a lot of people were like saying, you know, look, Brad, you could do this. You know, you could run with hand controls. Well, for one, I promised my wife and two, my big ego, I felt like just finished second in 97 to Steve Kinzer and had the most successful year I'd ever had. And I felt like I was just starting to figure out how to go fast and how to win races and why you win races and, and when you don't win and you know why you don't win kind of thing. And then I got hurt in July of 1988. So starting over with hand controls, I knew deep down I probably wouldn't be as good as I was, or I knew for sure it was going to be a, you know, starting over and a big learning curve. I turned 31 in the hospital after my accident. I wasn't that old, but I just wasn't willing to start over. I never really used getting back in a race car as motivation. It was more of just being independent. In 1992, Brad Doty was given a chance to get back into the sport through the mode of television. Being on TV at that time was extremely important for Brad Doty and for the sport of sprint car racing. Once again, here's Dave Argebright, who has also done extensive work in the world of motorsports on television. Just as television really boomed in sprint car racing, and so the timing was that here was this guy who was, you know, very popular before and was struck down by this injury, and now he's coming into the living room, and, you know, he's a really nice guy. He's got a nice voice. He's soft-spoken. He's very knowledgeable. He's He's got a pleasant demeanor, and I really like this guy. That's when things really started to take off. Uh, live TV really did the sport a lot of good, and it grew from those eight or ten races in the winter to, I think at our peak, we were doing like 18 live shows a year on TNN. Probably more than any other single person. Brad was the the bridge, the communicator between what was happening on the racetrack and with the racing people and what the average race fan could interpret. Brad found great success on television and became one of the leading voices in the sport. Despite his injury, he was still very relevant to the world of sprint cars. And that meant he still had a lot of fans. One of those fans, Larry Wood, decided to build something that would honor Brad's legacy. So he made a replica of the number 18 Coors Light machine. I don't know how Bill Holder and Larry hooked up, but they wanted to do what we call a photo shoot for Open Wheel Magazine, which is you know now Sprint Car and Midget Magazine. But they wanted to know if I would you know meet them at a racetrack somewhere and get in the car and do do some photos. So I pulled out one of my old Coors Light fire suits and slipped it on, and it still fit pretty good. So. I agreed to meet them, and it was at the Muskingum Speedway down in Zanesville, Ohio. And I drove down there, I met them, and back to my independence again, I said I didn't want anybody to lift me in and out of the car. I wanted to try to figure out how to get in and out by myself. The seats we ran back then, the left side was pretty open and not very tall in the back. So I wheeled up to the 
car and hopped off on the left rear tire and I picked my legs up. I, you know, took my hands and picked pick my, my legs and put my legs up on the top frame rail of the cockpit, grabbed a hold of the roll cage and one pull, I was sitting in the seat and I thought, darn, I should have done this a long time ago. That was so easy. I had no help whatsoever to get in and out of the car. At the end of the day, we were pushing the car down the front straightaway with the four-wheeler and I just started imagining, I thought, boy, it would be so great if I could just flip the switch and fire this thing one more time. You know, just, just run a couple laps. I don't want to race. I don't want to run. You know, just, just run a couple laps. On the drive home, Brad had about an hour and a half to think about all he had experienced that day and how hard it would be to get back on the track for one last lap. He knew, of course, he would have to convince his wife, Lori, that this was a good idea. So I got home and I gingerly tried to figure out how I was going to ask my wife, you know, would you, what would you think if I did this? You know, I don't want to race. I just want to drive the car, you know, one more time, make some hot laps and, and I'll be done. She didn't even hesitate. She said, I think you should do it. And I was like, what? <laughs> Once I had her approval, I called Larry Wood and I said, hey, what would it take? Because it just had a, what we call a dummy engine, uh, a mock-up engine in it. He said, I think we can do this. Tenth anniversary of the King's Royal, the race I got hurt at was coming up. And uh, he said, what about if we pace the field at Eldora? And I thought, wow. Brad's schedule as a broadcaster was a blessing and a curse. He would certainly be at Eldora for the King's Royal with TNN calling the race. But that also meant he had to get to and from the press box in between heats to put his car on the track. And then, of course, once he was done, he had to go back up into the booth and finish calling the race. It was going to be a whirlwind of a night, and almost no one knew what was about to happen. We were live TV. Uh, I was up in the booth calling the race. After the B-Main, car was actually sitting behind the grandstands all day, and I was signing autographs with the car. We tried to keep it a secret of what we were going to do. And so I got in the car, and we actually pushed it around behind where the suites are now at Eldora. And I locked it in gear, and we fired it. And we, I pulled up to the back pit gate and was letting the engine warm up. And people started coming out of the grandstands. And I've got some photos that I saved surrounded by people up on the gate because people started realizing it was the 18 car and it's sitting there running. I was strapped in it with my helmet on. As the crowd started to figure out what was going on, Brad started rolling out on the track in the number 18 Coors Light machine that so many had seen him run in years past. But what I wanted to know was what went through his head when for the first time in 10 years, he saw a green flag out of turn four and an open track in front of him. Literally, my first thought was, don't stuff it in the fence. <laughs> I really, I was, that was my biggest concern when they, you know, gave me the green was not to go too hard and either spin out or worse yet, like I said, put it in the wall. I felt like I really had to focus pretty hard on just making good clean laps. So had it been determined prior to this that they were going to give you the green flag after a couple pace laps? Yep, yep. And that, and that's why I was a little disappointed that they you know, watered the track, which they, they needed to get to track prepared for the feature, you know, so it was a better race, but it was still pretty greasy yet. It hasn't, you know, hadn't been run in yet. Yeah, I knew it was, you know, we were going to get at least a few laps. We had a really low gear in the back of the car. Again, wasn't expecting it to be, to be so greasy, but I was able to get, I it was, if I gave it too much throttle, it would spin, but I was probably able to get at points, you know, probably three-fourths throttle. Using hand controls from a four-wheeler, Brad was able to control the throttle with his thumb while putting both hands on the steering wheel. There was a handbrake off to the side that he would use to slow the car down. A totally different way to drive a sprint car than most people would ever experience. But Brad was thrilled to get back out on the track. 
in a car that, yes, was meant to be shown and not really meant to be driven. In fact, it still had those broken wheels that had been welded back together. Same ones. That's what I'm saying. It was never meant to be on the racetrack. And so it had the welded up wheels on it and a front axle that wasn't in the best of shape. You know, again, it was it was meant to just be a show car. After Brad finished his hot laps, he stayed out on the track as the rest of the world of outlaws came out to join him. And this moment was certainly made for television and for any sprint car fan who loves history. Steve Kinzer pulled up alongside... Kenny Jacobs waved to him from the outside. Jack Haudenshield was near him as well. And then old Sammy Swindell swung up in the channel lock number one and tapped the back of the Coors Light 18, reminding his old buddy that they and all of us were there to watch him. It, obviously, it's hard to put into words. And in a way, I'm fortunate because now the drivers aren't mad at me because I'm, I'm not banging wheels with them anymore. So I don't have as many enemies. They, sometimes I might, they might not like what I say on, on TV or something if I call them out on something. But it was really cool to see those guys. Mutual admiration, I guess, we had for, for each other at that point. And Sammy giving me a bump, I, I teasingly say, I'm not sure if that's when he felt like he was paying me back or him saying, you know, get one up on you. You won't ever, ever be able to pay back. So I'm not quite sure, you know, but for, but... <laughs> But, you know, Sammy's not a very emotional guy or doesn't show a lot. And for him to do that, it was, it was kind of cool, you know, for him to, to even think that, you know, or, or, and like said, Steve and Jack and Kenny Jacobs even rolled up beside me and, you know, gave me a wave and a thumbs up. And again, it was a special, but I, I admit I was kind of preoccupied with knowing, you know, when this is over, I got to get back up in the booth. We're live TV, you know, kind of thing. Not that that took anything away from it, but I felt like I had another job to do as well. Again, once the race was over and I had time to think about it, and then once I saw the video, you know, that's when it really hit me. We pushed the car back up around the back of the grandstands. I hopped out of the car, got in my wheelchair. The guys got me back up in the booth. I think they had run four laps by that point. And I finished calling the race on live TV with my fire suit still on next to Steve Evans. So that was a night obviously that I'll never forget. One other thing from that night, as fast as Brad Doty was going, again, remember, with hand controls, he still thinks he actually could have gone even faster. When we tested the car on the dry, dusty surface, I really think I was making better lap times than I did when it was actually aired, you know, that night. What do you think you were doing in those sessions, like percentage-wise? There were times that I, you know... I think I was at least 80 to 90% throttle, but I, again, a dry, dusty, dirty racetrack, at, you know, I had to lift the car, get out of it and feather the throttle through the corners. But overall lap times, I still think, you know, I was getting around better. I do have video of the practice session too. A friend, a friend of mine was there and some people videoed it. Looking at it visually too, it, looks, it looked like I was going a little faster at the practice. Brad knew this moment was significant, but he'll even admit he didn't quite know exactly how big it was for everyone involved in the sport. When I saw the video later, uh, that's when it really hit me how important it was to not only myself but my and my family, but you know a lot of a lot of fans as well. The people that saw it live on TV for several years, everywhere I'd go around the country, it would be brought up. And I don't want to stereotype anybody, but I, I was in California. I was at Chico, California. And I signed an autograph, and this great big muscle-bound biker dude come walking up, big arms, tattoo, long hair. And he said, man, he said, I've got to tell you, 
that night you drove the car at Eldora, I cried like a baby. He said, I was doing okay. He said, I was holding out. But when they showed your daughter and the big tears rolling down her face, he said, I couldn't hold back. He said, I cried like a baby. And we laughed because, you know, you don't expect this big gruff looking guy to, be, to come right out and say that. He said, but that was just the greatest moment, he said, and something I'll never forget. When I realized what it meant to other people, that is when it really kind of really hit home with me that this was a pretty pretty big deal for you know put a lot of closure not only for myself for other people too dave argabright wasn't at the king's royal that night he was covering another race but the reverberations were felt all across the sprint car community and really the world of motorsports it was a topic that was kind of on the front of the conversation range certainly everybody heard about it and this was pre-twitter you had your conversations face to face and yeah i mean it captivated everybody it was exciting and kind of inspiring you know because it was like okay this is going to be closure for this person you know on a 10-year anniversary and isn't that cool i mean i i don't i don't recall one person having any kind of negative observation about, well, he shouldn't have done that or no big deal or any, I mean, I think it just universally inspired everybody. My son was only two years old when I got hurt. So obviously he doesn't know or remember. My daughter vaguely remembers some, some of our trips, you know, we, we in a motorhome a lot and she remembers a lot more of that kind of stuff, you know, than any racing or anything I did in a race car. For them to see the fans' reaction and to see the response that it got, yeah, it was, it was, it was special. I, I always wanted them to kind of understand or, to, you know, what I did as a driver. And now that they're older and we have grandkids, and you know, and and the TVs kept me involved, and I and I really appreciated that I got involved in TV because it kept me in the sport. A lot of people only know me from TV. You know, they they knew I raced, but they they only knew me from the TV stuff. So yeah, but it was important to me for them to be able to see that. Absolutely. Today, the Brad Doty classic is still alive and well. It is on the world of outlaws calendar and it is always one of the best events of the year. And for many, the race is a great reflection of its namesake. When Brad was on TV, when TV was prevalent, the outlaws were in front of a very significant number of people. Of all the evolving players, you know, myself included, who have kind of come in and out of that circle to cover the world of outlaws on television, the one unchanging factor was Brad from the early 90s. I mean, 30 years, he has had a presence as sort of the face and the voice, you know, of what you see in your living room. Dave's right. It's an amazing legacy for Brad Doty. My thanks again to both men. Brad's autobiography, Still Wide Open, is available. And if you want to read it, it's got way more information than what we went into in this podcast. You can purchase it directly from Dave at DaveArgabright.com. We'll have a link in the show notes and also on our Twitter page at Stagger Podcast. And of course, get to the Doty, the Brad Doty Classic, AtticaRacewayPark.com to get your tickets to see the world of outlaws in Northern Ohio. Thank you again for listening. Make sure you hit subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Next week, we're going to be telling you the story behind one of the most boring races in NASCAR history. I promise you, it's a pretty amazing story. Till then, take care and thanks for listening to Stagger.